Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal, and here in the same room as me is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Hi. I did it on kind of a higher pitch this time, so I couldn't be, like, confused for a horn. You're a different bicycle horn this time around. (laughs) I'd like to think I'm not even a bicycle horn at all. I may be a sort of tenor trombone. Oh, sure. Okay. Just a slightly more sophisticated instrument. You're looking at me like you expect me to pluck the low-hanging fruit (laughs) that you've just dangled in front of me. In Uh, one of the most mixed of metaphors. Oh, you always do. I, I have never... Mm-hmm. Never gone for anything other than the highest of brow. The high hanging fruit? Yes. <laughs> Which I is marijuana. <laughs> Good. Uh, well, gentle listener, we're going to talk about books. We're not going to talk about scotch, even though we're drinking scotch. And the scotch we are drinking is, if you listen to our previous episodes, the same Lafroy 10 year Isla single malt scotch whiskey. Oh, did you want some of this? Yeah. Oh. And I will have some, one way or the other. Somehow. Somehow. I know I know that in the last 24 hours, you've proven you're a better runner and have better upper body strength than I do, <laughs> but I can just sort of lay on you and you'll lose. Yeah. And if I have to lay on you in order to get Lafroy 10-year-old scotch, you better believe I will do so it. So be it. Hang on. Do you want a glass? She said yes, so I gotta go get it Yeah, that's that's fair. Them the rules. Them is is the rules. Now I'm tempted to argue that I could like get you to lose because you didn't give her the glass after we read the rules and clanked glasses. Because this is the way I play D&D, too. I'm just mm. the biggest rules lawyer that there is. Oh, yes. You know this. Yeah, it set me off on a tangent that we probably shouldn't do, but I was like, what if we each had to make a saving throw at the beginning <laughs> of an episode where oh. we just lost? Oh, man. <laughs> we failed it. Just add a D&D roll <laughs> to it. Hmm. Feels appropriate to who we are as people. but Right, right. That would that would add a, a uniqueness to the podcast. Well, my work here is done, but <laughs> your wife's isn't. So. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Karen. <clears throat> Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. 
the wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven, if four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thanks, Karen. Skunk. Schlank. Alright. Now, we're going to continue talking about a book that we haven't been talking about yet. Excellent work. (laughs) We're gonna be... Suppose you think you're terribly clever. Uh, you know, I'm just very good at podcasting, and if I weren't that good at podcasting, then none of this would have happened. Um, so, we are discussing the book Despair by Vladimir Nabokov. So, is that how you say that name? That, I was going to mention that I learned recently that that is how it is supposedly pronounced. Which I've been pronouncing it as Nabokov. That's how I've always said it. My entire life. Um, but, I don't know. And since you were the first major, like, Nabokovian influence on uh-huh. me, I probably got it from you. Oh, that could be. That could be. I think it is a more Englishy way to say the name is sure. Nabokov, rather than the Russian that it comes from. Right. Which very well could be. Nabokov instead. Sure, 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 sure. It's like people who say Tolstoy. Tolstoy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's apparently the Russian pronunciation, or at least emphasis. Right, where the accent falls in the in the language. But right. Well, this this is a book that was originally written in Russian, and depending on where you go uh, in the uh, opus of. Uh, Nabokov, uh, he's ra- writing in Russian or English, and then it gets translated the other way. Sure. He's written in French, too, I think. Um, he's kind of a language geek um, throughout his, his life. <clears throat> but uh, this one, okay, so the only thing that I've ever read of Nabokov before this was Lolita. Um, and it was a book that was interesting enough to me I wanted to read more of his work. Um, and so I wound up finding this one on a shelf in a used bookstore somewhere, uh, and decided, hey, it's here in front of me, I'm thinking about Nabokov's work, and I will just get it. So, um, this marks the second book of his that I have read. Um, do you have any more background in Nabokov Uh, at all? Especially as far as background, I, I know as much from... From you and your mm. scholarship and, and uh, presentations and conversations as anything, probably. Um, sure. The only, the only thing I can uh, uh, get one up on you regarding is that I have actually apparently read more of his books than, than you have. Yeah. Because um, I read... I was... I get his early work... Uh, Especially kind of confused with um, Kafka sometimes. Oh, okay. Um, but I read Lolita uh, 
mm-hmm. and I've read Invitation to a Beheading, mm-hmm. um, and I read Look at the Harlequins, mm. um, and I've also read Pale Fire. Okay. Pale Fire, out of all of those, is definitely the one that I um, have considered numerous times uh, bringing to this podcast as sure. my choice. Um, partly just to try to, you know, step on step on your feet a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. Um, but also because there's <clears throat> there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in, in Pale Fire, and mm-hmm. uh, I certainly felt like I did not, reading reading Pale Fire and Look at the Harlequins both, I, I felt like I didn't get nearly as much as I could reading it one time as I could sure. reading it a second time. Well, and Pale um, Fire is the one that I've heard is the one that I should read at some point. Yeah. I would say... sources being... I would say, like, the... Uh, probably the two, you know, if you were gonna read a novelist in terms of, like, the two... Their, their most lasting, hmm. you know, sort of... The works of theirs that made the most lasting impression, uh, which is obviously a separate category from, like their best work right Um, right but you know like you'd read probably tom sawyer and huck finn out of mark twain right in the same way you would read probably lolita and pale fire out of uh nabokov's work right right i think i've heard like invitation to a beheading comes shortly after those yeah which um was published the year after despair um And I was wondering, because I'm not familiar enough with it, I was wondering how much connection there might be. Um, there are just several references to beheadings happening here in Despair. Yeah. Uh, so I wondered how thematically connected they might be. It's been several years since I read Invitation to a Beheading, but um, I remember being a little bit surprised by it, because that actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that's the one I get confused with. I sometimes think Kafka might have written okay. it. Um, just because, like... Invitation to a Beheading is very, it's Kafka-esque in that it's, like, abstracted, but it's this, like, abstracted, you know, almost modality, mode, in mode of telling it's almost fairy tale-ish, but Hmm. it's a fairy tale about sort of a, you know, red tape, heavy government, Hmm. you know, kind of, I believe the, uh, um, the main character is, like, imprisoned and and sentenced to be beheaded and uh uh it's it's never made clear to him or the reader like why mm-hmm. this this is happening to him and you know it it seems very clearly like an an uh allegory or or a figure of of you know soviet sure um, stuff but which was very much in Nabokov's experience um coming out of St. Petersburg and such um his family was very wealthy he was born right before uh the the turn of the 20th century um and he grew up quite wealthy um right and then for various reasons had to flee the country right so yeah um yeah so I I certainly like in in the mode the two books would strike me as very different um mm-hmm. like i certainly don't think you could you could say you know this invitation to a beheading is is the the back end of the main character of this book oh, sure. story or anything like that um maybe maybe you know a, a smarter and more perceptive 
scholar than I am, uh, mm. you know, might be able to do that. But uh, I personally, I, uh, I doesn't seem particularly apropos. Sure. Um, thematically, you know, in in some of the the more buried themes, I would suspect there's probably oh yeah more linkage. Sure. But well, uh, should we give the listener a chance to read the book? Yeah. All right. Go ahead, gentle listener. Take a read of Vladimir Nabokov's Despair, and then come back. Oh, you said Nabokov, yeah. Did I? Yeah, you did. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so something that uh, I, I want to start out with some a, a commonality between this and Lolita, which, as I said, is the only um, other book by Nabokov that I've read. Well, that's what I was, one thing um, I was going to say is, like, I have I think I've read more of his fiction than you have. Right. But you've most certainly gone more into depth with the fiction of his that you've read than I ever have. Sure. So, I, I consider you still more of a, a Nabokov authority. Okay. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to, you know, uh, disagree with everything that you say about him, as I usually do. Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go. No, go that's on okay. Your, uh... um, no, okay. So I want to the, the 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 most clear similarity right at the forefront is that um, both novels are told by an unreliable narrator. Um, it's Humbert in Lolita and Herman in Despair. Um, and uh, in his foreword, Vladimir Nabokov uh, kind of compares the two. I don't know if you had a chance to read the foreword. I did. It, at all. I, it felt like being lied to uh-huh. a lot. <laughs> right. But That's... I don't, I, I, I read it, in fact, I think I read the foreword and didn't read the book for a couple days because I was, I just felt like I had been lied to a bunch of times, but I couldn't place why or where. Sure. Anyway, uh, so he, yeah, he compares Humbert with Lolita. Yeah. Or with uh, Humbert and Herman. Yep. Um, on uh, page 13, um, he says, uh, Herman and Humbert are alike only in the sense that two dragons painted by the same artist at different periods of his life resemble each other. Both are neurotic scoundrels, yet there is a green lane in paradise where Humbert is permitted to wander at dusk once a year, but hell shall never parole Herman. Um, which is just an interesting thought here that uh, Nabokov thinks Herman is somehow morally more bankrupt than yeah. Humbert. Yeah. Which to hear of him talking about Humbert um, in other places, it's really surprising to me because he did not like Humbert. Um, well, um, does that, does, does that uh, line about Green Lane and Paradise versus Hell Never Paroling, does that mean... Is that moralistic necessarily? Okay. Um, because the other thing that could could be is that there could be some sort of sympathy for Humbert as mm. a sick individual, an individual with a, a mental disease. Okay. And so the comparison might be that someone like that, though they need to get held responsible for their crimes, you know, because mm-hmm. because there's a brokenness there, they get. Uh, some mercy however slight sure. versus uh if herman is is pulling what he pulls mm-hmm. in full knowledge and and ownership of his uh um 
you know, even the, the moral aspects of what sure. he's doing or, or if there's no disease to almost not make him sympathetic, but make him, him, uh, less responsible. Sure. Well, yeah, I think maybe on, along those lines, Herman is more sociopathic. Exactly. Uh, than Humbert. Um, well, yeah. And just, you know, that he knows this is wrong and he's, well, sociopathy is, care. yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. Sociopathy is like a potentially medical diagnosis that I'm not always yeah. comfortable making, but certainly more cold-blooded or more yeah. Machiavellian. Right, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other uh, thing that I noticed about this, I didn't catch until I had finished reading the book, but that um, he talks about Herman and Humbert as uh, figures painted by the same artist, mm. which the sense of, of art um, is there in the book and and that's something that Nabokov does really well he did it throughout Lolita he does it throughout here too is just like the repetition of different phrases mm. um and and concepts that just weave in and out of the narrative um that crafts things in a powerful way I don't know mm. if I have a better way to say that than a powerful way um it gives the hint of, of, you know, there's more going on if you want to compare it to, like, Gene Wolfe, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, with this idea of this unreliable narrator. He's lying to you. You know he's lying to you. There's going to be more in the background. There's going to be more going on that you right. have to kind of weed out um, and, and discover. Uh, and by having some of those phrases and and concepts woven throughout, that that's your trail of breadcrumbs, right. sort of. Um, it gives you the chance to, to see what's behind it. And the, the artist uh, aspect here, I think it gives a hint that uh, Nabokov is lying there at the beginning uh, in the, the foreword mm-hmm. in some sense, which I'm convinced he, he did in um, his, his commentary on Lolita uh, as well as probably other places. Um, yeah, like... Uh... I know that it's true that uh, there were novels that um, Nabokov wrote in Russian and then translated mm-hmm. or had translated into English. Um, like, I don't even necessarily buy the whole idea that this this book went through, like, three editions stretching back, mm-hmm. you know, to, to 1932. Like, it just... I don't know, and maybe, see, some of the, I was going to say when I said this forward felt like it was filled with lies, uh, some of it has to do with, you know, the fact that I'm just ready to be lied to by, oh, yeah. by this man, like, you know, there there could be a, um, uh, I forget the term for the, the fallacy where, like, you see something because you expected to see it, not the other way mm-hmm. around, but, uh, <clears throat> that said, um, I, I don't know. I just, like, it feels like a shaggy dog story to say that, you know, started in 32, there was an edition in 36, it got bombed into non-existence, <laughs> you know, uh, and I don't know, did you do, happen to do any research on, like, the editions of this No, of this I, I did not. Um, it, that, that does sound like, um, a, a different of his works, um, not not that it was bombed into non-existence, but 
um, the Enchanter. It's it's listed in his short fiction. Um, sure. uh, has a lot of similarities to Lolita, mm. um, and he believed, or at least the report is that he believed that all copies of it were destroyed until after his death. Uh, there was one found among his papers, oh, and then it was translated into English and such. But if you know anything about Lolita, the Enchanter um, connects thematically. In Lolita, there's this whole you know, woven phrase of the enchanted hunters or the hunted enchanters. Sure. Uh, and all of, all of that that's, that's through the, the tour of, of America and, and such that uh, Humbert takes uh, Dolores on. But... Uh, so, you know, again, how, how much do we believe Nabokov when he, when he t- talks? I do want to make a caution here, though, that um, some critics have erroneously done this thing where they equate his protagonists with him. Sure. Um, which would get him riled up a lot. <laughs> sure. Uh, he's like, I'm not Humbert. Stop. Right. I'm not him. Um there are similarities uh, amongst himself and his protagonists. A lot of them are um, uh, displaced Russians uh, who you know move out. A lot of them are uh, intellectual uh, professor types or right. and or writers, um, and, and uh, speak several languages as as he does uh, and such. So there are, there are similarities uh, that are definitely there, but. It, they don't necessarily mean any more than just this is the life that he was drawing on for right. the sake of fleshing out those protagonists. So, um, but that said, I think he does have some fun with the idea of deceiving the reader. Sure. But not maliciously. He does it in order to play with, with the reader and sure. to invite the reader to play along in a sort of gene wolfian way sure uh i was trying to find uh it it i did find uh on a on a on biblio.com whatever that is a russian copy of despair that claims to date to 1935 okay um so see yeah that's uh, maybe I'm just too suspicious of of this man going in. Um, sure. By the way, this is a listing for two a two volume set, Camera Obscura and Despair. Um, mm-hmm. Both, I believe. Oh no, these are even English translations. Oh. Uh, Seventeen thousand five hundred dollars for the set. <whistles> both first editions. Including the 1935 despair that was, you know, yeah, bombed out out of existence. Right. So, right. Uh, hop on that Patreon, gentle listener. And, yeah, uh, give us that uh, that ability. We'll, to... we will uh, review the 35 edition of despair and see after we've uh, learned Russian. Yeah. Well, no, this was an English. Oh, that was an English translation. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was in Russian at first, but uh, anyway, interesting. Yeah. Um. So with that that concept of uh, deceit and and lying, we get to this narrator uh, of despair who lies and talks about lying. Um, on page four, it's like second page in, 
uh, into the narrative itself. Right down down in the middle, uh, he says, a slight digression. That bit about my mother was a deliberate lie. Uh, he admits to, to falsehood. And then at the end of that paragraph, um, I could, of course, have crossed it out, but I purposely leave it there as a sample of one of my essential traits, my lighthearted, inspired lying. Um, now, here's my theory about that. Yes. Uh, my theory is that for the whole rest of the book, he is just straight up telling the truth. Uh-huh. Um, and the lie was that he that does he lies. lie a lot. He just put that one lie in there to make us question the rest of it. Interesting. Interesting. To make himself into uh, an unreliable witness. Exactly. In his his defense. So that when we when he admitted to terrible things we would automatically question them and think sure. he was better than he was sure sure um i guess i i i can i can see that um that it makes possibly just as much sense as any other uh potential <laughs> that comes through here as he's he's lying throughout uh and possibly trying to lighten his sentence or something. Um, I, I want to jump all the way to the end there with, with this in, in mind. Sure. Because there at, at the end, if you think about this uh, idea of deception that he's lying throughout all of this, which kind of becomes quiet. Like he'll bring it up once in a while that he's, he's a deceiver. He lies once uh, occasionally he'll, he'll bring that up, but it's, right. it's quiet towards the end in the last few chapters uh he doesn't talk about it as much which i think is possibly a deliberate sort of letting it fall off uh until then you get to the very last paragraph um well on page 211 at the bottom of page 211 um he uh makes this potential presentation that how about opening the window and making a little speech so it's like here's a possible outcome and then you get this speech where he's calling down to this crowd where there are police around uh, and everything. And he's going to try to convince the crowd that this is uh, a rehearsal uh, and the crowd needs to hold the policeman back. Uh, it's all part of the show. Uh, and he's going to come running out and get to escape. Sure. Which, like, doesn't actually make sense. It wouldn't actually work. I don't sure. think. Uh, you, you don't. You don't think. No, I don't think so. Like you get, you get the sense that okay, maybe this is the best possible effort that that right. would work for him to get this escape. But then you know, all the police would have to do is say, no, it's not. We haven't started yet. <laughs> it's not a trick. It's not a, a rehearsal. You know, they just deny it. They're there. They can hear it. So then, yeah, uh, it wouldn't work. Um, but it it, it does. Okay, I'm thinking about this theory of yours, <laughs> and I wonder if, you know, he, he's he's setting up this, this escape that's based on a deception, but if he doesn't actually lie anymore, and he doesn't lie, if, if he never says that, if, if he never makes that speech, well, then he hasn't lied either, because he says, what if I did this, basically? Right. Um, so it's just left as a potential. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I was debating at what point to tell you that that was just like, a nonsense theory that I came up with sure. in the moment. Okay. Um, for no real reason. Mm. 
Occasionally. So you lied to me. Yeah, I, it's, uh, just, I did. Um, some. I don't know if you lighthearted inspired lying. Exactly. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but occasionally I have a hobby where I come up with like plausible sounding but completely nonsensical <laughs> theories oh. and float them on this podcast. Yeah. It's okay. It's not it like sounds... we've ever done like entire specials about that. Or you know, it seems like that would be uh, you know, a little too much for for us, you know. I don't think we should we should ever do that. Yeah, well, just wait until we record our Don Quixote pre show <laughs> special. Yes. Which is in the future from this one. In the future, yep. Oh, good. By the way, have I ever told you my grad school or my grad student theory about our show? Maybe. I don't remember. I don't think I've ever put it on the podcast. Okay. Certainly. But, okay, so I have this, this theory that's like, basically futurists right um talk about how the like amount or the the amount of physical space you need to store digital information Mm. um shrinks at a predictable rate Uh, for a while it was every seven years i think that's that's uh gone down now but it's like you know 256 uh, uh, uh um hard drive that cont- contained 256 megabits in the in the early 90s you know was like bigger than your computer is mm. now and 256 megs for you know a computer this size would be laughable mm-hmm. um let alone you know you can get solid state one terabyte hard drives that are you know you could hold in a in a hand right right um and uh that that ratio keeps on sort of you know growing and shrinking uh that way to the point that it shouldn't assuming no major sort of technological interruptions um it shouldn't be too long before you know maybe a couple hundred years before like all of the current internet could mm. fit onto like something the size of one of our flash drives mm. right Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means to me is that eventually all podcasts will be archived and easily accessible. Oh, sure. Just all podcasts that exist. Right. Um, and given another couple hundred years after that, like, uh, grad students will be studying podcasts as communication, mm-hmm. uh, artifacts and cultural artifacts. Um, right. The way that we currently study films or, or other, you know, even pretty pretty current um technological artifacts now given a couple hundred years beyond that all of the good podcasts will have been done Mm. um sort of the way that you know grad students in say victorian literature now have to study like like pulp novels and, and dime novels and um other things because like all the your charlotte brontes and your charles dickenses have just you know all the scholarship it seems like it's been done on those, right? Right. So what I'm saying is, eventually, one to three grad students will be writing a thesis on Michael and Ethan, etc., etc. <laughs> and so sometimes, what I like to do on this podcast is just sort of low-key speak directly to them. Uh-huh. So instead of like speaking to our gentle listeners and anyone who 
does contribute to our Patreon or anything that I should be doing. I'm really making remarks for grad students 600 years in the future. Got it. And most of those remarks are uh, either like confusions of cultural artifacts from now to Mm. just throw everything they think they know into uh, chaos. Right, right. Or their nonsense theories Uh that I'm making sound plausible so that grad students in the future will think that um, people in this time period did in fact so you're being this you're being an evil gerald murnane is what i'm hearing because doesn't he do that doesn't he have stuff specifically yes. for the grad students that are going to study him um yes and he, <laughs> he knows he's going to be studied in more of the immediate future so he, right he can do this this uh sort of experiment or or direct address in a in a way that is much less he he pulls far fewer intellectual muscles stretching for the for that context. But yeah, he, he addresses things to a person he terms future creature. Yes, the, the that's right. Who will future creature. Study him. And yes, uh, that 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 Gerald Murnane thing did influence mm-hmm. what I was just talking about. Absolutely. Good. But I had to go farther in the future to assume that I would be studied on an academic level. Right. Um um, I, it, and that's why I say that this this book is not full of lies. It's only full of truth. It's, it's only full of truth. Got it. Um, dismissing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I it, I did have Gerald Murnane on my brain oh, sure. uh, already in connection with this book, uh, and that comes out of this uh, this runner this this thread um, that. Uh, is right there at the beginning of the book, the very first line. If mm-hmm. I were not perfectly sure of my power to write and my marvelous ability to express ideas with the utmost grace and vividness. Um, so he's he's already um, cranking up his artistic ability here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that almost verbatim gets repeated on page 195. Um middle of the first full paragraph, he says, if I were not absolutely certain of my literary forces, of the remarkable knack, at first it was tough, uphill business. Uh, so, again, that, and it gets cut off in the same way. It's not mm-hmm. a complete sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, his ability to write is somehow essential to his his story here and he gives the reason to uh on pages 194 and 195 his reason for writing this and so in order to obtain recognition to justify and save the offspring of my brain to explain to the world all the depths of my masterpiece did i devise the writing of the present tale um it, so the reason is he wants recognition yes he wants the, the his plan to have some posterity to live on he wants people to understand how deep his writing is and how right. deep his artistic pursuit is. He needs to have a commentary. What he's saying is he needs the commentary on his art so that it lasts. Right. Which is often considered like, you know, and, and here we are going into into uh, psychopathy or sociopathy. But oh, like, sure. That's, that's often the... the explanation for you know serial killers who leave Mm -hmm. elaborate clues or or crime scenes or you know 
because uh, a lot of time and and you know a lot of times people like that get caught and the mm-hmm. the obvious you know um question is like if you were this smart why did you leave clues behind to get caught and often the the explanation for that is like I needed someone to know, otherwise I'm just killing people in the dark. Right. Um, and and there's there's almost a paradox there, especially when it comes to, like, crime and the genius of, of mm-hmm. you know, master criminals, is, like, you getting away with the perfect crime and nobody ever having done the perfect crime could look right. the same because no one would ever know. Right. Um, and so if if you have that bit of ego and people who are are brilliant often do you Mm -hmm. you know yeah you want you want to leave some recognition you want you want you to be known somehow right and depending on how advanced your ego is sometimes it's just like the fact that someone did this is good enough but if you have an ego that's advanced enough Mm -hmm. you need you need recognition on a personal level right and that's like so obviously there is that perfect crime quote unquote in this book and that i think um yeah the the summary on the back of the book says that uh, it's uh the story of herman a man who undertakes the perfect crime his own murder right which it, just in those terms that murder itself is kind of uh i, I don't know how well worn it was here but it's essentially just ins- insurance fraud right uh you fake your own death uh, in Herman's case, it's so that it, it's done by killing his double. Right. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so you've got that actual crime here, but then I'm also thinking with Gerald Murnane in The Plains, you've got that, the filmmaker in there, who's right. trying to create this perfect film, but realizing that's essentially impossible, which is also connecting in my brain to, uh, Tristram Shandy, who's trying to write the perfect book, uh, of his life, but can't catch up. <laughs> well, it's funny you should bring up the name Tristram Shandy. Oh boy! Because uh, I needed to bring up Tristram Shandy at some point. I'm so glad. Uh, do you know where I'm? Do you have an inkling where I'm going with this? Uh, no, not offhand. Okay. Well, uh, chapter one. Perfect. Um. And yeah, I know, I know you've been already trying to trap me into doing this, and here I am quoting the very thing <laughs> I cannot say. <laughs> um, but right here, right at the start, I underlined a single clause in a, one of his very long sentences. Hmm. Um, and starting middle of, middle of uh, the page here, I'm just going to resume reading... Uh, in the, or, or pick up in the in the middle of a sentence. But there would have been nothing to describe for, gentle reader, nothing at all would have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know what single clause in there I underlined? Uh, you tell me. I'm not sure. It was just the, the clause, gentle reader. Is it gentle reader? I literally okay. underlined that and wrote Tristram Shandy in the, in the margin. And now, you know, I'll... It, when I have an inkling about something, uh-huh. I'll just highlight it and write it down. And if uh, if it turns out to be my brain connecting, you know, unrelated. things that aren't there or unrelated things, or I can't find any other uh, evidence for it, you know, I'll just I'll just uh, not mention it on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, on page it's page five in our edition, um, so one page turn from the the beginning of the 
narrative. Um, first full paragraph. Uh, Did you lose? First full paragraph? Yeah. No? It's not a loss. Especially not so close. in this context. So close. Um, nice try. Uh, uh, go I, on. I think I ought to inform the reader that there has just been a long interval. <laughs> and um, this connects to some of the meta stuff you were just talking uh-huh. about in a, in a slightly different context. Um, and maybe this is this is part of where that thought was ultimately going. The idea that this book uh, accounts for itself as a text um, in a way that, that mm-hmm. many, if not most, you know, fiction stories don't. This book takes account of its own creation. And that mm-hmm. does connect it both to Gerald Murnane and the Plains and to uh, Tristram Shandy. Right. Um, but I, I underlined it because, again, you know, it's, it, there can be that case of, like, uh, a thing looks the same because it, it is directly influenced, but can also be a, a case of, like, simultaneous creation or similar influences mm-hmm. or impulses, you know. But I, I just noted it again. Um, yeah. Because that was uh that was you know fairly Tristram Shandyish like there are parts in Tristram Shandy where he will uh, uh, stern or or Shandy as as narrator will even between sentences in the same paragraph say I think I ought to inform you that between the end of the last paragraph and the beginning of this one I put my pen down for three entire days or I had an attack of the um uh the tuberculosis and I couldn't write for a week or something. And then he'll reflect on, mm-hmm. like, oh, it's so swift in the text, but for me, it was just so difficult. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Um, so that was the, the second place I noted. Uh, and then on page eight in our edition, um, towards the top of the page, <laughs> at this point, now that I have got to the important part and quenched the fire of that itching, it is meet, I presume, that I should bid my prose stand at ease and quietly retracing my steps. Try to define my exact mood that morning and the way my thoughts wandered when, after not finding the firm's agent in, I w- went for that walk, scaled that hill, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That is, I want to say, and I haven't done the legwork on this, but I'm almost certain that is, like, a close paraphrase of mm. at least one, if not more, passage from Tristram Chandy. Like, I believe there are bits in Tristram Chandy where he he uses that extended metaphor imagery of like his words as marshaled soldiers that he bids Mm -hmm. to stand at ease um but the thing that really just almost made me just like throw my book at the wall in a rage came on page 16 um in our our edition um last paragraph last Full paragraph on that page. Um, <laughs> having teased me a bunch of times uh, with, you know, potential but somewhat unconfirmed or unconfirmable Tristram Shandy reference, um, Nabokov has his narrator say, Look, this is my nose. A big one of the northern type with a hard bone somewhat arched and the fleshy part tipped up and almost rectangular. And that is his nose, a perfect replica of mine. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, describing his supposed double um, here. But, like, 
the only I can think of only two other places in literature that I have ever like seen someone no three other places in literature that I have ever read sentences specifically describing a nose at that level of like obsession mm-hmm. um not to mention excruciating detail um one of them not to get ahead of ourselves is the book i am a cat um mm-hmm. the other one that i could think that i just added to my list was jacques the fatalist uh-huh. but both of those works are explicitly and unapologetically uh basing their nasal passages as it were uh thank you on the life and opinions of tristram shandy um in the book of as like someone in this period Mm -hmm. studying and teaching the great works of literature at european universities like it's another it's another one of those things where he cannot have done this without knowing that people would think of that Sure. I mean, he at least would have been familiar enough. Yeah, he would have to have been. Yeah. Um, and at a certain point, like, that fact means that that's an intentional choice on the author's part. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there there are multiple places where he's sort of challen- uh, channeling Tristram Shandy. Yeah, I do. I like that, too. I kind of stopped noting it out yeah. of rage at well, that point. <laughs> um, yeah. And because I think I, I figured I had made my my case there but uh, yeah yeah so there is that element of this book and it and i think this is gonna tie back in to what like your train of thought regarding art and the planes and tristram shandy yeah um and uh, I, i think this all ties back in but there is this element of this book that is really you know in a sense it's a crime novel in another sense it's a it's Mm a mystery novel for the reader right um but in another sense it's got it has a strong set of reference to the book that in all of literature might come closest to being the diametrical opposite of those things Uh, the book that's that's you know um just sort of about all of life and Right. almost purposefully eschews any kind of like centralized mystery or or climactic narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, and, and that's all deliberate. That's that's all very deliberate. Um I want to talk about this more maybe in our next episode, but like Nabokov had a, a, an awareness and some pretty heavy opinions of literature. Yeah. Um, and other authors and things. And so he is extremely well read um, and is familiar with all sorts of, of different genres and um, tropes and things besides just, you know, being a professor uh, of, of literature. Um, he, in uh, on the back, it says he, he taught literature at Wellesley, San, Stanford, Cornell, and Harvard. Um, and I think I, he taught it more than that too but uh so he knows all of this stuff um well i i do want to talk more about some of the the literature uh connections here but keeping with tristram shandy once you get to chapter 11 it's it's every page um 
chapter 11 uh, comes right after chapter 10 ends in the middle of a word. Oh, yes. Which seems very Shandy-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and he then acknowledges that he stopped in the middle of a word. He broke his last paragraph on a rhyme to gasp by cutting off the word passport at PASP. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about, you know, where he is physically. He moved to a slightly higher altitude uh and describes all of this stuff and then it he he talks about how his work he meant to have an even 10 chapters uh but now it's just evolved into uh a, a diary um yes. and he's just recording day by day what's going on which is almost the um despair response to a failed attempt at what Tristram Shandy was trying to do. Right. You know, um, to, to write this like perfect account of the life and Tristram Shandy would backtrack and backtrack and backtrack. Uh, Herman doesn't really do that so much. Um, he'll give some background information here and there, but largely he's focused on this one single event or in the surrounding, um, and building up work to that event. Yeah. And that, did you have, um, were you uh, trying I don't, to finish a thought there? I, th- I think there might be more there. I'm not totally clear on it right this second. Um, I was just going to say, like, one one thing I wanted to mention uh, before we before we ended. Oh, well, uh, okay, a couple things. Um, number one, uh, I think... Th- what you just said may get at some of where the difference is between Herman, the narrator and Nabokov, the writer. Oh, sure. Because, um, as we talk here, honestly, it it was a thought I came in with, but as we talk, I'm, uh, more and more strongly suspecting, excuse me, that their, uh, their two aims are very different. Okay. Um, and, uh, part of that comes from a thing I did want to just mention, uh, uh, before we ended this, this episode, like I felt like it belonged in this episode, mm. even if we just mention it quickly, um, the end of the foreword, so like Roman numeral 14, um, the, the very final paragraph of that, uh, we leave Herman there, meaning where he is at the at the end mm-hmm. of it, of the novel, at the ludicrous height of his discomfiture. Yes. I do not remember what happened to him eventually. <laughs> so that's like I wanted to bring it up in this episode because you you started with that that question of like would his little plan at the end work? Yeah. Um and you know, I mean I have to agree with you that like if we assume that what's going on on the face of it is everything that's going on like it it makes zero sense at all like oh yeah it it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't work it doesn't make sense um Mm -hmm. and uh but but also the fact that that navikov says i do not remember what happened to him eventually Uh to me indicates that like what happened to him is not the point right um right it's almost like thinking back to uh um Wide Sargasso Sea, it's almost like a similar style of ending for a very different reason. Sure. Wide Sargasso Sea cuts off, you know, in order to sort of open up a 
a set of choices for a character who, you know, hasn't always had choices necessarily. This one almost feels like it ends where it does to close off the idea that Herman's choices matter, mm-hmm. that that's what, what the point of the, of the story is. Um, right. And then, and then Nabokov says, after all 15 other books and twice as many years have intervened, I cannot even recall if that film he proposed to direct was ever made by him. Right. Which, okay, I read the foreword before I read the book. Yes. Because I didn't, I wasn't too worried about spoiling anything necessarily. I didn't think this was the sort of book that I would feel bad about spoilers in. Right. Um, and so, uh, you get to that and you're like, okay, so I'm prepared for Herman to be some sort of artist, um directing a film or a student of film or something like that really i don't think there's a ton of film stuff in here not until until the, the last paragraph very end basically yeah. yes uh and and there it's just a proposal i think nabokov is just flat out lying right there uh, and there i'm pronouncing the name differently again um unreliable i know i know um so because he didn't of course he didn't direct the film it wasn't ever going to be a real film in the first place mm-hmm. um it's i don't know it, it, it but your your point too about the the different motives of uh nabokov and herman um make a lot of sense i think herman's goal is almost that sort of triumph uh at the end or potential triumph at the end of why yeah. soc um but nabokov's point is um pointing out the consequences that that come through and how his unreliability really comes back to get him that's something that's a a runner here too is Mm. he um lying or is he forgetting uh is his memory reliable is his memory lying to himself uh and that's maybe a theme we can talk a little bit more uh, about next time too um but yeah uh see and I, I think that's all valid. Hmm. I just also wonder if if Nabokov is going really to a Tristram Shandyish extreme and saying, ah. you know, the the idea that this is a this is a crime novel or this is hmm. a uh, um, a novel with a with a mystery that well, there's crime in it and there's hidden elements to the to the narrative. Mm-hmm the point is less about that ending and about figuring out the mystery or whether the crime, whether, you know, Herman gets away with it or not. Right. The point is about, uh, um, sort of, it's almost meant to focus you more on the page you're on rather than what the page is. Sure. Is leading to. Sure. Um, not to, not to be that guy, but, uh, Milan Kundera has a passage Mm. I think it's in uh I think it's in his book The Curtain um which is a as you know a nonfiction book um mm-hmm. has essays on on writing and and on the novel um it's either in that or in his novel Immortality which is one that might show up on this podcast sooner or later um, gotcha. but it's a uh, it's this line um well, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be able to quote it off the top of my head, but mm. the the paraphrase is that uh, 
he he's griping about sort of Hollywood films and their effect on modern fiction and how all stories have come to be this thing that this this structure that's like leading up to a climax and then mm. everything else about the story sort of gets burned away as jet fuel to get to that climax. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't, you know, I don't know if Kundera was was claiming that it was a modern phenomenon somewhat tongue in cheek or not, but I don't think it's a modern problem. I think it's part of the project that Tristram Shandy was trying to do mm. and that or at least the subversion that it was trying to do and that there have been other um works like that throughout the history of literature that have tried to push the impulse back to each individual page almost being um mm. as important as valuable mm. as any other page yeah okay um I like that and that you know part of the if 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 that's anything about what Nabokov was doing in this book, um, part of the way he's accomplishing that is using a set of tropes that usually accomplishes something quite different. Mm. Um, but I, I came to the end of this book wondering if that's like in in Nabokov's you know typical almost contrarian way if mm. that's part of what was going on here. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I do want to say one more thing because I did yeah. um, catch uh, something I said earlier wasn't exactly accurate. There, there is mention of um, film and acting in mm. the book previous to that end, um, and that's when Herman is deceiving Felix and telling him he's an actor and needs oh, yeah. an understudy. That's right. Um, and uh, so I, I mean, again the idea of a film and there's this film that's going to be performed uh, or filmed and he's going to be acting in it. Mm-hmm. Of course it never happened because it didn't exist in the first place. Again, Nabokov, come on. Um, <laughs> but uh, he, he uh, then reveals to Felix, uh, his double that uh, he's not an actor uh, on page 94. He says, I am no actor whatsoever, but a shrewd, hard businessman. He, briefly, here's the matter. I intend performing a certain operation, and a slight chance exists of their getting at me later. All suspicions, however, will be at once allayed by the definite proof that at the exact time when the, the aforesaid operation was performed, I happened to be very far from the spot. And that's what he needs Felix for, uh, who's recognizing that there's a crime happening, um, and and that he's going to be an accomplice to it, but he assumes it's robbery or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but... In that, the point is not the crime being committed for Herman even. The point is that he's deceiving Felix and deceiving other people. Right. It's He's not... Uh, he later on, I can't remember exactly where, says that um, he, it, the, his whole aim was this greed for gain. Um, but uh, the way he phrases it is, no, it wasn't. <laughs> right. Um, and... Uh, it's not about the money, which never seems to be, um, oh, here, yeah, uh, he, he's talking about the narrative structure, uh, on page 177. I know, I know, it is a bad mistake from the novelist's point of view that in the whole course of my tale there is, as far as I remember, so very little attention devoted to what seems to have been my leading motive, greed of gain. Uh, uh, how does it come that I am so reticent and vague about the purpose I pursued in arranging to have a dead double, uh, 
so the the point isn't that money the point isn't the crime the point is the deception right. uh which he's doing on every page mm-hmm. and which mm-hmm. makes every page valuable and not just some of that jet fuel right to get to a climax that's you know by not having a perfect climax either points right. to that yeah yeah well good. i think that's as a good a thought as we're gonna have to to leave stuff on not that i'm trying to step on your toes you're you're stepping all over them well i mean you know you like it (sighs) well neither of us is getting punished this episode (laughs) uh so um keep reading along with us gentle listener Uh, on a couple weeks we will finish our discussion of despair by vladimir nabokov uh, so hit us up uh, on our website in the contact section of tapestryradio.org. You can reach us there, put Scotch Talk in the subject line, or you can find us on Twitter, at Room with Scotch, or go on Facebook, find join the uh, Tapestry Radio Tap House. If you request to join, we will let you in unless you are claiming to be the double of one of us. Um, we'll also do your homework. Uh, we're not promising to do it well, but we're promising to do it in such a way that if you plagiarize it and turn it into your teacher, uh, we will laugh at you as you get hauled off to plagiarism jail. Uh, just go to the website, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, fill out the form towards the top of the page, and we are going to do our best to uh, make you go to plagiarism jail. If you like this podcast, check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, our backstage drama podcast, and Us Play Fiasco, the Fiasco RPG improv podcast. Freddy Goes to a Podcast, the Freddy the Pig book series discussion podcast, uh, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United actual play podcast. Rate and review us and all the shows that you love on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Amazon Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Since we don't pay to advertise, that helps other people find the show uh, and enjoy it. So, Ethan, where can they find you? I am on Twitter, at Bjartlett. That's B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. I have a webcomic called Pinporter Girl Detective. Uh, I believe it's pinporterdetective.com. Yes. I am on Twitter and Instagram at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. And with that, gentle listener, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if our plan to commit the perfect crime is foiled by something. Some meddling kids. Some meddling kids and their dog. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.